A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing <laughs> works a lot. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Be damned if the same politicians who refused to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. M M M Caitlin. <laughs> Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Whole Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks into the mirror and says, She's a woman! (laughs) (laughs) And for the people who love them. Every week, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. So... Caitlin, I feel like we've had an emotional breakthrough with you. We have. Yeah, you've decided pretty much in your mind to get a dog. And I want you to talk about how you imagine that your dog will fit into our lifestyle. Well, I don't know if that's an emotional breakthrough because always in my mind, I'm deciding to get a dog. But I have been thinking about if it's possible with us traveling, if it's possible for us to have a dog without it being like, oh, I see the dog a couple days of the month. If we get a small enough dog, then we can take it on planes with us. You know, we could get dog-friendly hotels. That could be part of your, like, contract. And if it's, like, small and cute and well-behaved, how could anyone say no, you know, to us bringing this dog with us everywhere? And like like me, I'm small and cute and well-behaved, and how can people say no to me? So I understand that logic. (laughs) I think my dog would be a little bit more (laughs) well-behaved than me. You know, Um, but... I don't. I also don't really know where to find a dog, to be honest. You don't know? Yeah. Petfinder.com. <laughs> oh. That's where you Is go. Is that like really reliable, though? Yeah, it's rescue dogs. Does it connect you to rescue dogs all over the world? It connects you to rescue dogs that are right near you. Okay, because I feel like I follow a lot of rescue organizations on Instagram and they're all far away, but maybe. Pet finder is the way to go. I'm looking it up right now. I want a dachshund, preferably a long-haired one, I think. <gasps> this dog is wow. one mile away. Look at his little <laughs> face. I know. His name is, it could be her. Her name is Tiny Madison. Yes. Look at this yeah. and hound. I know, but those are all big dogs. Okay. Oh, this dog called Tiny. I know, but it's a shepherd and hound mix. It's going to get big. It's going to get big. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so it's going to be... Oh, they're... Look at oh, that one. Look at Wonder Woman's face. God. Petfinder.com, everybody. Uh, it, they're all big dogs. I want a big dog. I want any dog. You know what I mean? Within 100 but, miles, there's 6.6 thousand oh, dogs gosh. that need your love and attention. Oh, look, there's so many. Wow. Australian Shepherd. Australian Shepherd. Wait, I wonder if they have a, a little one. Oh, a mini one? Oh, my God. That's what I really deserve, you know. Look at Marley. 
That's that's Merle. Merle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Also, I want everyone to know that for the longest time, Ms. Cracker thought the name Marsha was said Marcia. (laughs) Shut up, Caitlin. (laughs) Look at that. Oh, my God. Bossy Bossy pants. pants. Okay. I think that we've had a riveting- Well, I'm going to have a busy day today looking at PetFinder.com. Anyway, I wanted to talk about that because um, I thought it would bring joy into your eyes. But now it's time to move on to our next segment. I want to dive into our serious groundbreaking interview, but I have a little treat for you. Every week we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. The idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times. And this week, our news is all about going out the way you want, Caitlin. Okay. Now, some of you may remember we had a death doula on our show a few episodes back. Someone who helped people navigate the end of their lives with the same care and attention that a midwife gives to helping people navigate the beginning of a new life. And it was really an eye-opening episode for me because she told us that there's no right way to experience the end of your life, no right way to have a funeral, and most of all, no right way to conduct a burial. So here's the good news. For all those that want a less traditional burial, one that causes less harm to the environment, there's now a company that allows you to undergo an end-of-life process that turns the body into compost. According to People.com, you can now reserve a spot with a Seattle-based company called Recompose, the country's first funeral home to offer human composting. Isn't that amazing? So you don't use any chemicals, you don't cremate, you don't embalm or anything. It just is a natural process that composts the human body. Wow. So last year, Recompose began transforming bodies to soil after Washington became the first state to legalize the practice of human composting, more formally known as natural organic reduction. Before that, end-of-life options in the U.S. were limited to burial or cremation, both of which come with environmental costs. U.S. cremations alone dump 1.7 billion pounds of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. Oh my God, I had no idea. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So they're both really harmful for the environment, and graveyards, I imagine, take up a huge amount of space and require a huge amount of like chemicals just to upkeep. Anyway, I think this is good news because my mother sent it to me with joy, and anything that makes her happy makes me happy. For those of you that don't know her, the most important thing to my mother in the world is living in balance with the environment and causing the least harm to the earth. And now she, a Washington resident, has a local company that will allow her to maintain those values through the end of her life. It's so fitting that uh, Washington State is the first... Oh, absolutely. State to legalize that because yeah. it's just very, I think of them as like granola mm-hmm. hippies. You yeah. know what I mean? And I, I think that fits. I would have thought California. I could see that too. What we're saying is the West Coast. The West you know Coast. What I mean? Yeah. If you're going to sure. be, if you're going to be composted anywhere, the West Coast or the West Coast of the East, Vermont. Oh, so true. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think this is a, a really amazing story. Animals' bodies just decompose back into the soil or whatever, the earth. And so why not humans too, I guess? Right. I could become a tree or some flowers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You would love to be a ginkgo tree. I would love (laughs) to be a ginkgo tree. You nailed it. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Anyway, enough about that. It's time to take a little break. A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing <laughs> works a lot. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Okay, we're back. Now, before we continue, let me say this. If you enjoy your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We are obsessed with reviews. We literally are Uh, unable to get enough of them. So give us a review. Yeah. (laughs) Give us a review on the podcast app on your phone or anywhere. DM us. We don't care. Yeah, I'll read it from a DM. Yeah. Or or email us. Yeah. Yeah. Send us a review or a response of any kind, and we will be very excited to read it here on the show at the end of the show. However, now it's time for our interview. And Caitlin, let's talk for a minute about how we connected with our our interviewee today, Kim Joy. Okay. Season nine of The Great British Bake Off, which is a very much beloved show. Oh, absolutely. It seems like there's this crossover between Great British Bake Off fans and Drag Race fans that I don't think I realized until that season. And we met her co-star, I guess, Dan Beasley. Yeah. And there was a part on the show when Dan Beasley had just gotten eliminated and... Kim Joy said to him, you're my Ms. Cracker. Yeah. And a bunch of people sent it to us and they were like, oh my gosh, this is the crossover we want, blah, blah, blah. So then um, you ended up connecting with Dan Beasley and now I thought it would be good to try and connect with Kim Joy. Yep. It's really going to be an interesting story today too because she, like me, is associated with mental health issues. And when fans love her, they love her because of her anxiety. And I'm like, oh my God, that's me. So I want to kind of compare notes with her and be like, what is it like to be a poster child for anxiety? Yeah. Well, you know, being anxious the whole time. (laughs) While being anxious the entire time, (laughs) like an Australian shepherd. So (laughs) here we go. Let's dive in. Kim Joy is best known, perhaps, for her turn on the Great British Baking Show. Her birthday falls on World Baking Day, which she takes as the surest sign there can be that she was born to bake. Born in Belgium to an English father and Malaysian Chinese mother, she grew up in London, studied in both Bristol and Leeds, and now lives in Leeds with her partner. She has an open attitude to all styles of baking, loving rustic baking just as much as she loves creating cute bakes with an emphasis on detail. But her story is a little more complicated than you might think. She's an advocate for mental health whose life has taken many turns. So, Kim Joy, how are you? Where are you? And what are you doing? Oh, hello. A triple question. (laughs) I'll I'll try and remember all three different arms of that. Where am I? Um, I'm sat in my living room. I'm in Leeds, sat in my living room. And how am I? I I'm good. Yeah, I think before before coming on here, I was a little bit nervous, mostly just because I'm so I, I love 
I love you. Um, and I'm just super excited to be doing this. Um, so I put on some music just before this to give myself a little bit of energy <laughs> and also to wake me up. What music did you listen to? <laughs> oh, well, I've got my running Spotify playlist and I've been putting on, I've been, I love Eurovision. I don't know if you watch it. Yes. Yay. <laughs> I love the Ukrainian song this year. <laughs> it's like a Ukrainian rave song. So while I was having my first coffee, Kim Joy was listening to Ukrainian rave music, which I, I love that. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I want to say we're so glad to have you on. And I wanted to talk to you first about this past year. And I always ask my guests, like, what was it like during the pandemic? But I particularly want to ask you, um, Everybody started cooking and baking during the pandemic. What was it like for you as a baker to watch everyone take on your craft all of a sudden? Oh, I mean, on the one hand, it was really, it's lovely because I, I, I love seeing more people baking. And I think baking is such an amazing, it, I mean, everyone says this, but it is true that it, it just really helps ground you in the moment and helps, I don't know, it touches all of your different senses and it just... It's just really therapeutic as well as tasting amazing. <laughs> but then also at the same time, there was a bit of a shortage of ingredients. And I was like, oh, no, I need this stuff. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I bought a giant, giant bag of flour, 25 kilogram flour. Yeah. Found online. So it was all fine. You know, my sister bakes, but she's the only person in the family that can bake. I am like, all my bread is flat <laughs> and all my biscuits taste like baking soda. So I'm just like, no, I've seen your, like, cause you did with, with Dan, um, you know, Dan, yeah, you did your, the gay bread and that was good. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning to do a few things. I think the thing is that I can't stay in the present moment. My mind is all over the place and my sister is very focused and she has that presence of mind to uh, knead the dough just the right amount and make sure when she's making biscuits that she's not overworked or making a pie crust that she's not overworked the the dough. You know what I mean? I think it does. There's a, everyone has their own different hobby or interest that kind of grounds them. And it might not be baking, it might be something else. Well, I was going to ask you, since, you know, baking is your main thing, was there something else that you picked up during the pandemic in addition to baking to keep yourself from going nuts? Or did you just double down on baking? Oh, um, well, we moved house in the pandemic. And I think I'm very, like, my environment really affects my brain. And so to feel like a little bit homelier, I picked up. I've got loads of house plants, <laughs> as as you do in the pandemic. But um, yeah, I love them. I've got an app, and it just makes me um, water them. It's just nice to have something else to look after. I think. Well, I'm obsessed with house plants. As soon as you said that, I, I just I have my own little cuttings that I'm growing at my apartment, and oh. I love watering them and caring for them and naming them and watching them grow yeah <laughs> it's so exciting like I see new like leaves on some of my plants and I say to my partner Nabil oh look at this it's really important it's really exciting and he's like I oh, know I've seen it before I'll never understand but uh, we understand <laughs> each other <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so 
my last question about the pandemic, because I don't want to st stick on it forever, is uh, what are you looking forward to now that things are looking a little brighter, opening up a little bit? Well, I think the main thing in my brain is we're getting our house renovated, but that's not that's not really linked to sport. That's not, maybe I'm looking right. forward to just at the moment. But in terms of like being able to set, I think it's weird because I'm quite an introverted person. I'm a bit... Mm. Um, I like spending time on my own, but I also love being around people. I think the pandemic made me realize I'm not as introverted as I think. I'm right. an extrovert introvert. <laughs> right. So like I love seeing people and I miss people. I think that there's a certain limit that we all have. Like I like spending a lot of time alone as well, but the pandemic was sort of like, here's the gift of being permanently alone. And uh, I was like, okay, so I do need people sometimes. I guess it's all about finding that balance. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So as I always say on this podcast, my favorite part is being able to rewind a little bit and talk to incredible women about their whole story from the very beginning. I wanted to know about your life when you were young. At five, you moved to London from Belgium. And I just wanted to know what it was like during that time in your life and what you were like then. So that, this has been something I've been thinking about quite recently. It's something that I I never really discussed it really because it's, it's kind of a long-ish story. Not, mm. It's just a bit like I can't... Um, so my mum, basically, she... So she lived in Malaysia, but she came to London to study, but she was working too many hours. So she got deported um, and she ended up in Belgium. Um, <clears throat> not sure exactly why, um, but I think it's that that's the last place she went to on holiday or something. Um, and she met my dad when she was being deported. Um, <laughs> and that's how she ended up sort of staying in Belgium, though she wasn't sort of familiar with anything to do with Belgium. It's a bit it's a bit sad, really, because in a way, so my dad was already married at the time. <laughs> um, and my mum moved in with his wife um, and his kids. So we all grew up together, like my dad, my dad's ex-wife and my mum. It wasn't good in that. I mean, my mum, I think, essentially felt trapped in that wow. like she's Chinese and Chinese culture is, you know, you're having a baby and you're not, it's not really a very like good situation, I suppose. Right. And my mum felt super trapped. Um, and my dad's not a very nice person. <laughs> um, and I don't read this, like, I don't really talk to him. Mm -hmm. um, but I felt like he'd kind of taken advantage of the situation a little bit. So we'd all sort of, so I've got, there's me and I've got a younger brother and an older brother. We all start with K as well. So we're all like, like kind of like the Kardashians, <laughs> but not school. Um, and then I've got uh, my half siblings who my dad had with his wife before. Um, but yeah, so eventually, so we all lived together. So I was five when I moved out, um, but we, my mum lived with, in that situation for about eight years, 10, okay. nine years. It's quite a long time. But eventually I managed to um, come to UK. Um, but it was kind of sad at the same time because I really bonded with my dad's ex-wife um, yeah. and she'd looked after me a lot of the time. Um, but obviously when we moved, 
we couldn't it's you know she's got her own family and stuff and it's a bit right of a weird situation um <laughs> and I think it's sort of definitely affected me with because I had selective mutism as a child and I really really strong and that still comes back a little bit and um, my older brother Kevin's got um really severe mental health problems and schizophrenia um and so does my mum my mum's been sectioned a few times and yeah so <laughs> I think I always have this like like sometimes I'm like ah, oh, I can't believe I'm kind of I seem like I'm doing okay, which is nice. And I feel like baking's probably really helped me um, just be sort of, yeah, in the moment. But the, I never really talk about the, the family situation just because it just, like, I feel like I've only just touched the surface even chatting with you now. Because it's like, be, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit, a bit weird. So do you think that that, is what compelled you to go on to what you would do later in life. You would work as a psychological well-being practitioner. Can you talk about that journey a little bit? Yeah. So when I, so I had really, really uh, severe social anxiety when I was a child, to the point where I found it, I, I sort of didn't talk in public. Um, and when I went to university, I sort of came out of that a little bit. And because obviously my family situation as well, I felt like I really wanted to help other people. And so I did a master's in psychology and yeah, worked as a psychological wellbeing practitioner um, for the Bake Off. Um, but I think in a way it's like through helping other people, you also help yourself. Um, and it kind of helps you give, helps, you know, especially when I work with people with social anxiety, I can really relate to them, even though I understand that every single person you know, if somebody has social anxiety, it's not exactly the same as how I've experienced it. We've all experienced it a little bit different, but it helps to be able to relate a little bit. Um, yeah. And then also applying. I think everything is weird because almost having social anxiety, you'd think, oh, you wouldn't want to work with members of the public with mental health problems. But I think I always saw everything as, as a bit of a challenge and I always wanted to I never wanted to be socially anxious. I'm like, in my head, I'm like really sociable. <laughs> and so I just wanted to keep doing things that push me out of that, especially because with social anxiety, if you don't, if you don't keep doing, putting yourself in situations that make you feel anxious, then it sort of takes over a little bit. Right. And there's always this little bit of a battle where you've got to keep pushing past it. Yeah. And trying to prove sort of because with social anxiety you have a lot of thoughts in your head saying that person's not going to like me or you know if I talk to them for too long they'll be like oh they'll go off me um and so you've you got to try and prove those statements wrong all the time and do things to challenge it that's very interesting I hadn't thought about that but I think in a way after the pandemic that's been coming clear to me I have had to get used to my social anxiety again. And I think we all have, because we all are out of practice in telling ourselves, you know, it's going to be okay. This conversation is not going to kill you. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I've noticed that too in the pandemic that's sort of taken over a little bit more and it's been a bit harder 
to do things that before I was like, oh no, I could do this. Do you you find that as well? Yeah, I, in the middle of the pandemic, when things were opening up just enough that you could gather like five people with masks, I did a photo shoot in front of a photographer and his three assistants. And all I had to do was go up to a kitchen counter and cook some uh, matzo balls and... I just remember standing at the counter and looking at the ingredients and looking at the people looking at me and just shaking. I was so nervous to be standing in front of like four people. And as a person (laughs) that is usually in front of like a packed bar full of people, it was so strange to feel that kind of terror, you know, and uh, I, th- I realized I was like, oh, my God, I haven't seen this many people together in a long time, you know. Yeah. And it takes a while to work out. It's like, why am I feeling like this? But I did have cooking to focus me and help me uh, pull myself together. And I kind of wanted to ask, we touched a little bit on this, that baking kind of soothes you and gives you something to focus on besides your anxiety. And I wonder when that first appeared for you, when was the first time that you realized that baking was like a a soothing practice for you? It's funny because I didn't really bake for it. I none of my family bake and I didn't bake much as a child. And actually, I don't think I particularly liked it. Yeah. I mean, I had to make mince pies and like, not like, not mince meats, like mince fruit pies mm-hmm. and I was like oh no not into that <laughs> um so I don't know the exact moment when it really uh, I was like oh this really soothes me I think with baking actually the thing that appealed to me first was actually that I could give it to other people and that could make other people happy yeah. and I'd feel a sense of purpose and especially with social anxiety you know if you turn up somewhere I just, you know, just started recognizing, oh, if I make a cake for people, give it to them. They look really happy and they're like, wow, you made that. I'm like, oh, yeah. And it just makes me feel so much better. And I think that is what got me into it initially. Um, and then it, then from that, it, from there, it just stemmed to the whole, you know, with baking, you've got a structure to it, which is helpful. You know, you have a recipe, you can follow it. But then also there's creativity within that structure and you can kind of go out of it a little bit and play with it a little bit. And yeah, that's what I love about it. You can, you can adapt it to how you feel. Yeah. Once you know what you're doing, I think you, you could explore a little bit more. I'm getting that way with, with cooking a little bit where I can look at five ingredients and be like, I know what this should be and not need a recipe. Yeah. You can get creative with it. That's, that's, like one of the best things about it um but yeah just seeing everyone happy when you get to give them something that's part of like what you do with mental health as well is that you try to contribute to people's happiness and I was wondering I I read in an interview you said that one of the frustrating things about working in uh, the mental health field was that you knew so many people weren't getting access to what they needed. You were able to see people for six half hour sessions sometimes, and you felt like it just wasn't doing what you wanted it to. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you think more people should have access to to mental health care? Yeah, so I think, so the service I worked within is one that uh, GPs will refer people to a lot, but 
GPs didn't fully understand what we do at the same time. So a lot of the referrals wouldn't be appropriate for what we did. Um, but also um, a lot of the referrals to GPs would know it's not appropriate, but they just send them to you so that you can send them on elsewhere. And I think it for people with uh, mental health conditions that don't exactly fit into those that can be helped in six short sessions, it can be frustrating because they end up having to go through multiple assessments and having to explain how they feel multiple times. And then I think it can just get a bit um, bit disheartening, I think. Um, but yeah, so the service I work, so it, the idea behind it is you work with people with low to moderate anxiety or depression, and that's what they call it. But I always found that in real life, it's really, really hard to, so the assessment would be like 50 minutes. And it's really hard to pinpoint, you know, because people don't always tell you everything in that time. And I don't think in real life you fit into low to moderate anxiety or depression. It sounds a bit like too clinical almost. Um, and, you know, you do questionnaires of people. So they'd say, how many times, for instance, in the last two weeks, have you felt unmotivated? And it's kind of, a, it's like trying to quantify everything which is a really hard thing to do. And especially if you've got uh, like depression and you can't, you're just like, well, I don't know <laughs> all the time. And yeah, I've just, the questionnaires you do in every session um, just to show like if people getting better or worse or, but I just, uh, for me, it was like a tick boxing thing that didn't really reflect on real life. Um, and it's to get data to show that it's this evidence-based and it works for people. But I think in reality, it might look on paper like it works for people, but a lot of people end up coming back or a lot of people feel pressure to bring their scores down to be like, oh no, I am feeling better. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's just that. And yeah, people don't fit into that box of low to moderate anxiety or depression. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. I mean, it did, does help some people who... It, it did it really really helped and it's amazing for that but it's just sad that there's just some people who come and they're like oh no I just need need something else having asked that question I kind of want to know I had my turn on reality television and you had yours and I think both of us have kind of become poster children for anxiety and depression and I kind of wanted to know what that experience was like what has it been like you know talking to fans of the show about this issue and sort of being a voice for it in some ways it's it's amazing to be able to share something that I've never so after the show I kind of shared about selective mutism which is something I've never really talked about because it's mm. quite kind of don't want to talk to people about it and especially having worked in mental health I have this feeling like I need to be a certain way and not you know strong in quote I'm doing quote quotation marks right with my hands <laughs> um but yeah so the show kind of enables people to relate to you because they feel like they kind of know you and that's kind of nice that they can relate and then feel better about things that they've gone through on a similar level but at the same time it's it's pressure as well which is 
yeah, it's how how I think. But overall, it's been a positive experience for me. It's it was sort of like my next challenge up. You know, as a socially anxious person, what's the hardest thing you can do? Go on television. Right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> It's amazing though, isn't it? Once you do it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, if, well, if I can do this, you know, I can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's an incredible feeling. Just like, okay, I'll just do it. Whatever. What, what, what's the worst that can happen? And yeah, so it's been amazing for me personally, because it's made me feel so much better that I've been able to do that. And that, yeah, yeah people can connect with you. Is that what first inspired you to go on? Was this idea of challenging yourself in the maximum way possible? Yeah, definitely. Challenge myself <laughs> as much as I can is, yeah. I always have this thought that if something scares me that I should do it, which is, but then sometimes I'm like, oh my, why have I signed up to do this? Not not all things though, like really, really scary roller coasters. I don't think I would do that. Same. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I guess you might have felt similar, like it's like this challenge and you want to just right. do it. It's the ultimate challenge. That's right. Yeah, I had done, I felt everything I could do in New York City, I had worked at my favorite bars and done all of the performances that I wanted to do you like used my creativity to the maximum in the city and I was kind of like well what's the next level up what's the next challenge how can I yeah. put myself out there and I was like well this is scary it was scary but I knew it was something that I needed to like graduate how how do you find it with sort of fans like knowing you and relating to you and how how do you find that is it does it feel like good to you it feels really great to me because especially when i feel like i've made a mistake or that i look silly i connect with fans and they say i've been through the same thing i've made the same mistake or i know how you feel and i realize that a lot of the stuff that um, a lot of my faults are just human, you know, and I I love that. I The only time that I get nervous is when people ask me like very serious advice questions and I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know any better than you. Do you know what I mean? So that's the only time that I feel like it's the a, a challenge is I'm like, yeah, I wish I could answer that for you. I wish I could answer it for myself, you know? Wish I could solve all the issues. Yeah, it's a hard thing though, because when you it's like because some you don't fully know that person, mm -hmm. and you wish you could help them, but it would take it. You, you know, you'd have to know them for a long, long time yeah. before you could fully understand the person's situation. I always think I don't want to end up giving generic advice. Right. You know. Yeah. Like something that's just generic and doesn't help anybody. I always want to avoid. So that's probably yeah. You probably want to avoid that, and you you really want. You really want them to feel better, but generic advice isn't going to achieve that. So I have to ask you, you've made baking part of your life. You've been on a beloved British baking show, um, beloved internationally. 
And I want to know, besides renovating your house, um, what's uh, what's next for you? What's the dream that you have next for your baking life? Oh, um, so I, I mean, the thing I've loved the most about after doing the show is writing books and that creative aspect of it and writing different recipes and just seeing that come together. Um, so I've just done my third book, which is feels nuts to me. And I, yeah, that's so another book and I'm doing a card game as well, which is also very exciting. So that's another thing that similar to baking, like that's how I met my partner Nabil is through playing board games together. Yeah. And I think it's a, something that a lot of people with anxiety and social anxiety often bond over because there's a focus. It's a social situation, but you're literally just playing a board game with rules. So you don't have pressure to, you know, do the, you know, when you're talking over drink, it's a bit harder. Yeah. So yeah, board games is another thing along with baking that I love. Um, so yeah, and just keep on, keep on doing what I love doing and renovate the house. And renovate the house. <laughs> okay, soon. Well, we're going to share some of your images and your books on our podcast Instagram and on our Miss Cracker Instagram. So I'll tell everyone to keep your eyes open for the next Kim Joy project. Yay, I need to send you a book as well. Oh, please, please send us a book. I will do. Yay. Thank you for chatting to me and listening to me. Of course. And we can't wait to see what you do next. Okay, Caitlin, that was our little interview for today. That was a good one. I th- I really, really relate to some of the things you guys were saying about social anxiety. Especially, you know? I saw your face when she said she liked card games and puzzles and stuff like that for anxiety, because that's your life. You love it's, those. I love board games and puzzles and card games, and I feel like none of my friends do because, well, I'm friends with a lot of drag queen extroverts, and for them, sitting around playing a board game is, like, boring hell, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, no, I like it. It just, it's like the topic of conversation is built in. Yeah. And I just, I really liked the way she pointed that out because I never really thought about it that way. Yeah. But it's very true. I liked being able to connect with another reality TV star about anxiety because that's my whole life. Um, Yeah, and how, like, she said going on TV is, like, the worst possible Mm -hmm. thing for someone with anxiety, and it seems to be very true. Oh, yeah, the worst possible thing for me. But you know what? We both got such amazing things out of our experience, and I think we both feel that the challenge gave us something amazing. So, anyway... Enough about that, Craitlin. It's time to take a little break. Okay, we're back. Now, before I continue, I want to say this. If you liked your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. Caitlin, do you have a review this week? I do. This is actually um, an Instagram DM you got. It's from Matthew. We met briefly this past weekend at the HMI fundraiser, which is uh, an event you did for Pride. I had just wanted to thank you for your podcast. I only recently discovered it, and the first one I listened to was the episode you spoke about grief, and I just wanted to say how grateful I am for the serious conversation you brought to the table. I needed to hear it. It was so helpful. Thank you. 
Oh my gosh, that's so great. And fitting because we were just talking about yeah, that episode in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. so shock. I just saw that in DMs and it made me happy. And if you want to make us happy, everybody, send in your review as you see or as you hear. You can use <laughs> Instagram DMs. You can hit us up on the podcast app. Anywhere is acceptable. We just love hearing from you. However, having said that, my children... It's time for my favorite part of the podcast, the credits. This podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin, and it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, She's a woman! And I'll be with you. Okay, Caitlin, it's time for you to go off to the gym. That's right. It's a million degrees outside. We're <laughs> uh, in New York. Teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now.